Well, good morning, everybody. We're continuing the series, The Strong and Unshakable Kingdom. Tim's going to kick it off, I think, this morning. Good. Good morning. <laughs> it's always fun when we try to do something crazy. Yeah. It's like, is it like dueling preaching? I know. <laughs> Who's going to be longer? <laughs> I will be longer. Yard bets? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Yard bets. Well, I imagine some of you have planted gardens this spring and now moving into summer. So back in May, you did all the hard work of preparing the soil, putting the seeds in, and preparing the plants to grow. And by now, in June, I imagine your garden is just full of weeds. <laughs> it's fascinating what happens. It takes a lot of effort to plant plants with seeds and little plants. It's a lot of work and effort to get fruits and vegetables to grow. But it doesn't take any effort at all for weeds to grow. Weeds grow naturally on their own, like, effort. So plants take a lot of effort. Weeds, they just grow on their own initiative. They can grow in hard soil, dry soil, any conditions at all, weeds will grow. So if you think about carrots, carrots are hard. Crabgrass, crabgrass is easy. <laughs> and when I was a kid, we had this huge garden, and it was my um, job seemingly every day to weed the garden. So we'd go row by row by row um, weeding the garden. And as a kid, I started out just going down the row and pulling off the tops of the weed plants. And I'd be done, and it would look like these perfect little rows of carrots or corn, and it was amazing and clean. But in a day or two, the weeds would be back. It, it would just suddenly reappear with full of weeds. So I learned early on in my weeding career that you had to pull the roots out with the plant, and that took more effort. It was more difficult. You had to loosen the soil to get in there and be more careful to pull them out. And also, after weeding that way, you'd be left with these nice, clean rows of broccoli or potatoes, and it looked so nice. And again, in two weeks, the weeds would be back. The bottom line is that weeds are persistent, continual, and invasive. And gardening requires persistent, continual, and relentless resistance to weeds. And we're talking about the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is like a garden. The scriptures often use this imagery of gardens and plants and weeds to describe the kingdom of God. So in the kingdom of God, there are plants that grow and produce the fruits and vegetables of God. And there are weeds which oppose the work of God and those good things. So one of the most basic seeds that we get to plant as participants in the kingdom of God is the seed that we are made in the image of God. As people made in the image of God, it means that we have dignity and worth and value because God made us similar to him. And so we plant that seed and do that work, but also there's a lot of weeds, a lot of weeds that try to vie for that and to take away from that image of God in us. And so when those weeds grow up, then rather than looking at people with value, we look down on people. 
we see this hierarchy of people and, and order. We see some people as lesser and some people as more. And when this weed is allowed to grow, the humanity of some people is reduced to less than what it is and what God created in those people. So this is how sin works in our world. God plants his good seeds to produce good fruit, like the image of God and dignity and glory that we have. And weeds invade God's goodness, like racism. Racism that blocks out access to some as full humans. So one way to summarize the history of God and creation is to say that God planted a good garden and then sin, sin invaded. And it, it took over and became a jungle. And Jesus came and Jesus is here to restore all things. And we join God in the work of restoring all things by planting God's good things and pulling the weeds that don't belong. So way back when God took action to show the world his ways and to teach us his ways, um, God chose one man and said, I'm going to choose you and grow a whole nation of people who I will show my ways and teach so that you can live in it. Here's what God said to Abraham in a blessing, sending him out. So the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The whole point of what God was trying to do was to plant this garden of people who would grow up living God's ways. God would bless them so that they would be a blessing to the rest of the world. In this, God, in planting, was showing them his ways so that this flourishing garden would be produced and people would come from all around the world and see this garden, this people of God, and say, wow, we want to know this God. We want to live in these ways. That was God's intent, but the weeds took over. The weed that was often there for Israel was thinking that this blessing of God is for us, and we are not going to share it. When the sin of keeping God's blessing for myself is left unchecked, the weed invades and takes over. And today, one of those weeds is racism. It has taken over, and its roots run so deep that it's impossible to completely remove them. So back in the 1960s, the civil rights movement brought the weed of racism to national attention. It was put on TV through the media, the brutality to black people that was being done. And the nation in, in an uproar said, no, racism is wrong, this is unacceptable. And so racism got some attention, it was identified, and a shift occurred. But, like when I was a kid just pulling the tops of the weeds off, it's possible that in racism, just the, the expressions of racism, the visible parts were removed and seen as unacceptable, but the roots were left in the ground. 
And then those roots produced racism in new ways, new ways that would be acceptable or new ways that would be more hidden. We as the followers of God and the way of Jesus live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, and we have kingdom work to do. We have kingdom work to plant the seeds of God in this world, in our communities, in our lives. We have to tend those good things. And we have to do the work of pulling out the weeds, which will be continual and relentless in our action doing this. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The seed of God that Paul was planting is that we are God's handiwork. We are God's workmanship. We are God's poems that God is writing through our lives. That is the seed of the glory in each and every person. And so we do the good work God has prepared to us, prepared for us to do to plant that seed in every person, to let every person know they are God's workmanship. And we do the work of pulling the seeds that anything that resists that. Susie, I welcome you back up after the small child care requirement. <laughs> yes. And I'll take care of the kids. Thank you. <laughs> Our kids just needed us as we started the sermon together. So that's what was happening, why I suddenly disappeared. But there are, as Tim just said, there are weeds in the garden of our world. There are weeds in the garden of my heart. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that Christ has come to set us free. Free from sin free from systems that enslave, free from, from fear, free to learn and grow and change. It's in this context of the eternal current of God's love that we consider racial justice and the gospel today. So we are living in the largest civil rights uprising in world history. And I want to say again that we stand in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters who are crying out for change. It w is very common today for pastors to quote Martin Luther King Jr. in sermons. But during the civil rights uprising of the 1960s, much of the Christian church, especially the white church, sat on the sidelines. So we want to be clear that we stand against racism, for justice, and in unity with the Church of Christ worldwide. Because racial justice is a gospel issue. Racist ideas are ideas, and anybody can consume them. Racist ideas are not new to the founding of America. They go back much further than that. I have consumed some racist ideas. And I suspect that you have too. I'd like to think that I could bring about change by just reading enough books and listening to enough podcasts and following enough people 
right now online. I'd like to think I could, you know, bring about change in me and in our world by just enough education. But of course we know the gospel reminds us, the Christian story tells us, education, it's not enough. Like, true transformation is not something I muster up and do. True transformation is a work of God, and it's a gift from God. It happens first and foremost inside. As I surrender to the voice of love, I cannot manufacture change in me or in my world. It must come from God. And so as we lean in and learn and listen and repent and grow, we do all of this seeking the heart of God, seeking the kingdom of God. Racial justice is hard, it's painful, it involves suffering first and foremost for people who are oppressed by unjust ideas and unjust systems. And it's also painful to change, to change yourself, to see change in your world. But this week, I was reminded of a passage in the book of Romans in the Bible where there's this little phrase that just jumped out at me. And the phrase is, we share in your sufferings in order that we may share in your glory. We share in your sufferings in order that we may share in your glory. Like if you are feeling heavy right now, the state of our world, it's okay. Maybe it's because you are sharing in the sufferings of others. Your eyes are being opened. And remember, we share in your sufferings in order that we might share in your glory. We share in the sufferings of Jesus that we might share in the glory of God. We're living right now in a world that is not yet made right. We know that, and we are right to acknowledge that. We are living in a world that is not yet made right. God is making all things new, and there will be a day when all unjust systems are made equitable and fair. There will be a day when all people are judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. There will be a day when everyone gathers and worships one king in perfect peace, in perfect justice, there will be that day where we are together for eternity in perfect unity. But right now, we live in a world not yet made right. And so it is right and it is good that until that day when Christ returns, we work together to see the perfect kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that work involves listening, it involves learning, it involves confessing and repenting and growing and changing. It also involves singing and dancing and silence and solitude. So let us not be defensive. Let us not strive to preserve this world that we know is not yet made right. Instead, let us be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Let us in humility be the ones who confess our sins are of both commission and omission. Like 
We have not loved with our whole selves. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Let us stand for justice and truth and for all of the values of the kingdom of heaven. The passage of scripture for today that Tim has already brought up, it continues in Ephesians 2, where we read about a racial divide that was threatening the unity of the early church. The division at that time was between Jewish people and Gentile people. The scriptures teach this. Ephesians 2, 11 says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. This passage tells us there is one king, one kingdom, and one people. There's one king, and that is King Jesus. As strong as our country is, in recent events, we, it's exposed, once again, our deep historical divides. And in Ephesians 2, we see that in God's kingdom, all earthly all evil, all unjust divisions find their end and are given birth to a new and diverse, united people under one king. And that king is Christ Jesus. Jesus is the king over God's kingdom. And when we become citizens of the kingdom of God, we recognize we have one true king. And that is Christ. So we're no longer given to a spirit of fear. We're no longer slaves to an empire. We now live in the spirit of Christ. We live and we walk and we move and we breathe in the spirit of freedom. We report to Christ. We follow God's lead. In this passage, Paul is really concerned with showing why the church is united across racial barriers. He basically is rooting his whole argument on the nature of Jesus and his work. Because he says this, <clears throat> you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, when Christ came, he did not withhold his blessings from anyone. Christ reconciled all people to himself. And that's different than the world that we live in. 
our nation and our world has embedded privileges for different groups. But in the kingdom of God, all are equal partakers of the blessings available in Christ. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have one king. Not only is this passage saying we have one king, it's saying we have one kingdom. Like Paul had to teach on this new unity within the church because at that time, both Jews and Gentiles understood that they were divided. They knew that. The Mosaic law at that time was a wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. But in this new kingdom, they had now both been brought into a new situation. In the old situation, Israel had special privileges. Now today there's a lot of conversation about white privilege. In this time, at this point in history, in this context where this scripture is, the Jewish people had Jewish privilege. So they had to change their thinking. They were now a newly created community which transcended Israel and its privileges. So it was like a simple equation. It was like Gentiles were reconciled to God in Christ and Jews were reconciled to God in Christ. So they both are now reconciled to each other in Christ. In Romans, Paul says it like this. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So there is one king, there is one kingdom, and there is one people, one people. The kingdom has one people. Paul says Christ has made one new man in place of the two, that we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, that together we grow into a single holy temple in the Lord. Like what he is teaching here, he's saying that the church in the church, there are no divisions between people. In Galatians, Paul says there is neither Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Question is, how were they ever going to actually live that out? And Paul gives us two things. He says, remember your history and remember your destiny. You wonder how we're going to live this out? Paul says, remember your history and remember your destiny. We first must remember our history. In Ephesians at 11, verses 11 and 12, he says this, remember that you were at that time separated from God. Don't forget it. Like, remember this story. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope in the world. Like, remember this. Jewish people, remember this. Gentile people, remember this. Remember this story. See, most Jews of the time thought that outsiders, Gentiles, could never come or fully participate in the covenant without being circumcised. 
But then the gospel totally destroyed, totally overturned that idea. And still, Paul didn't want them to forget their former divisions. In fact, one commentator says this about the word remember in Ephesians. One commentator said this, the word for remember in this passage indicates meditating on facts and realizing their full import. What does it mean to remember? It's to meditate on facts and realize their full import. Paul wants the church to call to mind their former divisions and realize the full impact of Christ's work in their lives so that they can appreciate their call to unity. Like when it comes to the conversation of race in America today, it is important for us to remember our history. It's important for white folks to learn black history to know black history in America, to remember this history. Why? Because when we remember, we are meditating on facts and realizing their full import. I mean, one fact as a church we must acknowledge and appreciate is as a church are just the deep divisions within American Christianity. Like Sunday morning at 11 o'clock has been said to be the most segregated hour in America because churches largely divide along lines, racial lines, you know, into white, African-American, Hispanic congregations. And in this passage, we see that Christ has broken down the walls of hostility. Some commentators say that phrase, breaking, you know, broke down the walls of hostility is referring to the barriers in the temple that were erected to divide men, women, and foreigners. So this passage calls us to see how Christ has removed these barriers. The kingdom of God proclaims the equality of all people who are equally created in the image of God. But we cannot embrace this reality fully if we do not value history, remember your history. And then second, remember your destiny. So remember your history and remember your destiny. It's like Paul is saying, remember also your undivision. Remember now where you are headed. Remember what has been accomplished in Christ. Paul says, remember your divisions and remember your new reality. Like We are now one people. So seek to leave, live into that reality. Paul draws our attention from, you know, remembering our divisions to remembering our new reality. We are now one people. Gentiles were no longer cut off from God's promise as strangers and aliens. Instead, he says, now we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We were once divided, but have now been undivided. How? By the cross of Christ. And this idea is just echoed over and over and over and over again throughout the entire New Testament of the Bible. Like, do you remember in Acts 10, Peter comes to recognize the inclusion of the Gentiles, and then he proceeds in Acts 11 to teach the church about it. Paul affirms racial inclusion when he says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. He affirms gender 
inclusion when he says there's no neither no male nor female. Remember in the book of James, James calls out a church that is guilty of socioeconomic favoritism in James chapter 2. Like the entire New Testament echoes with this challenge to remember that when Christ defeated death, the doors of heaven were flung wide open to any and all who would come. The table is open to any and all who would throw themselves utterly and completely on the mercy and grace and forgiveness available in Christ. And so all those labels that we use to divide, they do not apply here. What the Bible is not saying, it is not saying that all differences are erased. The Bible does not teach people to be colorblind. Like in every passage that we just read today, there are still references to groups, Jews and Gentiles. So we seek unity while embracing diversity. Like someone much wiser than myself used this phrase. They said, you know, they said, the goal is not to say I am colorblind. That is not the goal. The goal is to say, I see your color and I honor you. I value you. I will be educated about your lived experiences. I will work against the racism that harms you. You are beautiful. Tell me how to do better, right? Like th that is the goal. I see your color and I honor you. Not to be colorblind. When, when John speaks this vision of eternity, of heaven in Revelation 7, he says this, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb. Like this, this is a picture of heaven. People who are united as one in worship, one king, one kingdom, one people, but still identifiable by their nation, tribe, tongue, still identifiable by their ethnicity and language and nation. It's not unity by uniformity. It is unity in diversity centered around the person and work of Christ. So when we come to the table of communion, we remember that this is a big table and all are welcome. There is room in the kingdom, not just to tolerate, but to celebrate and honor all people and cultures. And until we embrace this level of community across all racial and cultural barriers, we do not yet fully reflect the deep unity of the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. This is the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, and it is coming. Like with or without you, it is coming. So as we close and as we come to the table together, Let's pray together. This is a blessing for when you're tired of broken systems, 
and some of this language we have borrowed from a prayer written by Kate Bowler. I invite you to say these words along with me today if you'd like. Oh God, I am done with broken systems that break the very people they are meant to serve. Oh God, harness this anger, channel it into worthy action and show me what is mine to fix and what boundaries to patrol to keep goodness in and evil out. Together we say, God have mercy, Christ have mercy, spirit have mercy. Jeremiah 2 says, They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And together we say, God have mercy, Christ have mercy, Spirit have mercy. Blessed are those who are appalled that brute ignorance can so easily dominate over decency, honesty, and integrity. Blessed are those who choose not to look away from systems that dehumanize, deceive, defame, and distort. Blessed are those who stand with truth over expediency, principle over politics, community over competition. Oh God, how blessed are we who cry out to you. Empower us to see and name what is broken, what is ours to restore. Guide us to find coherent and beautiful alternatives that foster life, hope, and peace. Help us use our gifts with one another in unity. Blessed are those who choose to bear the tension of leaning into this vision while living in the not yet. In God, all things hold together. Together we say, God have mercy. Christ have mercy. Spirit have mercy. Stretch out on the ground, lay out before God all that is broken, Wait for the healing spark that is yours to ignite. God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Amen.